Thank you very much, Brooklyn Public Library, for hosting yet another season of the review panel. I feel I've lost count, but it may be year five. Right. Well, who is here at the review panel for the first time? Do we have any? Fantastic. Great. Well, for your benefit, and just to refresh everyone else's memory, I'll run through exactly what we're doing here. We've all, uh, certainly those of us who've been paid, uh, have gone to see, I hope, four exhibitions that we're reviewing. Um, they are all current exhibitions, some of them with quite a way to go. Um, the format of the evening is that we have a couple of video presentations that um, refresh our visual memory of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, we'll look at a pair of shows to open up, um, and then the panel will discuss those amongst themselves. And um, then we have a, a chance for um, members of the audience to chip in um, and uh, expand the conversation a little bit. And then we repeat the exercise for the final two exhibitions. Um, so let me f first, my pleasurable duty, introduce um, our panelists for the evening, uh, all of whom are uh, recidivists. We've seen them all on the review panel in the past. Um, um, the lady to my left quite a number of times. Um, Jason Stoper uh, is a painter. Uh, he had his most recent New York exhibition at Stephen Harvey Fine Art. Uh, he is also um, a visiting assistant professor uh, in studio practice at um, Pratt Institute. And he is also a teacher at um, Columbia, where he is the editorial um, uh, associate of the Journal of Philosophy. Um, Eva Diaz, uh, Dr. Eva Diaz, is um, associate professor of art history at Pratt Institute as well, by coincidence. Um, she uh, is the author of uh, a, a major book on the Black Mountain College, The Experimenters. Is that the title? It is, The Experimenters. And she has um, the manuscript of um, her, her second art historical work on her table at the moment, um, which is a, a study of um, the privatization of space um, in uh, the post-Buckminster -Buck Fuller era and how it impacts the visual arts. Um, and Anthony Hayden Guest, um, eminent uh, international man of letters, um, author of the um, quite um, biting analysis of the art world, True Colors, the real life of the art world, um, at work, he tells us, on a sequel. Um, and also uh, something else that uh, occupies a deal of his energy and uh, creativity. Um, he is a cartoonist, and he has uh, many volumes of his cartoons um, um, available, a new one coming out soon and um, many of them are also available on the web. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. <laughs> Fabulous. So, let's watch the first of that, those threatened movies, and um, we can swivel around, panelists, and take full advantage.
The first exhibition we're discussing this evening is Gary Hume, Destroyed School Paintings at Matthew Marks Gallery on West 24th Street. The exhibition features 14 new paintings and six new sculptures. According to the press release, quote, the paintings were inspired by news photographs of schoolrooms destroyed in recent conflicts in the Middle East. The contrast between the naive rendering and innocent subject matter of the wall decorations and the brutal destructions surrounding them is at the heart of Hume's new work. Their distressing poignancy compelled Hume to bring these found images out of the news cycle and into the realm of more lasting contemplation through painting, initiating a deeper, more empathetic experience of the ravages of war. In contrast to the paintings, the sculptures in the exhibition are painted a ghostly white. Hume's familiar wonky wheels, the basis of these works, appear here both restrained and energized by elements suggestive of human interaction. Johannes Vogt presents Elizabeth Hazen Heatwave at his Madison Avenue Gallery. According to the press release, quote, the charged climate of the works in Heatwave belie a subtle and pensive look at the passage of time and the nostalgia for a place that will never exist again. Memory is a fallible instrument where even the very act of recalling a moment, person, place or time can distort it. Photographs and images distort our memories even further, supplanting the memory of viewing actual first-person experience with a static image. Hazen's landscapes, not landscapes, entreat the viewer to digest the formal dynamics of line moving through space and colour, while leaving behind subtle hints as to what histories these moments might hide. Heatwave is a mirage of memories. Okay, thank you. So, Gary Hume, one of the original YBAs, young British artists, um, hit the scene with paintings of doors painted in house paint um, and has always been um, one of those painters, one of those young conceptual art, neo-conceptual artists who um, seem to be teasing the threshold of um, um, endurability for the banal and for the um, uh, for, for a kind of almost a joke about images um, and um, yet here he is now taking on extremely poignant images and I wondered if this is a sign of uh, maturity or dotage or whether it's um, another attempt at a kind of dark humor or whether in fact there was um, a similar uh, political and poetic um, depth to those um, glossy hospital doors and, that I had missed the first time round. So it, it, that it, it, um, when a painter who trades in a kind of banality produces work that seems to 
negotiate a kind of profundity, it makes you rethink everything, perhaps. Um, Jason, um, what would you say about this show? My, you know, my original take walking in was that the the paintings, you know, kind of belie the actual nature of what the work is about. So my my first impression was how disarming, how incredibly disarming and innocent and almost uh, naive the images themselves appeared as if somebody who wanted to kind of paint something as if it was um, the, the first time they were approaching their subject matter. I, I, the thing that I'm trying to kind of ascertain is how much there's a kind of... Uh, poetic inference that he wants us to have here, how much he wants us to engage with the actual subject matter and how much there's a kind of um, that, that the banality that's there might underlie a certain kind of like malevolence that there's a, maybe a kind of disdain. I often think about this with, with respect to Luke Toyman's paintings and that there's a, a banality, a kind of um, disdain that underlies the kind of uh, matter of factness that he has there and i'm still i'm still trying to establish what what the ultimate position is g- given his history as being somebody who really you know really doesn't have a a political or social kind of uh, i guess stake in the game right not not um not a natural humanist um so therefore um uh, uh, ava were you um, impressed by the poignancy of his chosen images, or did they make you suspicious? What sort of um, what sort of politics did they engender in you? I agree with Jason that that innocence that um, in the kind of cutout style. I mean, it reminded me of Matisse, where there's this kind of like color fields and um, and there's the seduction of of that patterning and beauty to it. But I think there does. A, times feel like there's this kind of leeching out of the suffering, I suppose, that is the source, you know, of these destroyed schoolhouses and signs of them, you know, of, of, of um, violence, but very, very, like, they're effaced into these kind of beautiful fields of, you know, of bright colors, and then that sort of sheen of the enamel that gives you even more of a, of a kind of glossiness, right? So, yeah, I'm not quite sure, you know, what to make of that show. And then with these wonky wheels, like, is that a joke to you? I mean, like this, I mean, they have a kind of spinning wheel quality, like falling down and then wagon wheel, I guess. But, you know, this incommensurate elements that you have to sort of join in your mind. You have these paintings of Afghani village schoolhouses, and then you have these wagon wheels or spinning wheels. And so, you know, there doesn't seem to be enough of a clue to the viewer, like how to make connective threads. Again, as you said, Jason, with any political stake that you end up feeling like maybe there's more of the kind of frivolity is what you're left with as opposed to like are you empathetically saying like these are concerns of mine of these Mm. children and teachers not really right Mm. well I mean to that point there's there's a couple of things that I feel like we need to address first in that he's using enamel which is you know it's it has that kind of seductive glossy kind of quality to it and it's something that we often associate with commercial commercially made items not necessarily a a painter's first choice perhaps we might think of it in terms of the way that Joyce Pensato used it or Chris Wool used it in the 90s um, but it's not often in this case, I think 
to privilege a um, the, the painter's hand as much as it is to kind of give us like a flat, opaque kind of. Uh, generic graphic quality to the paintings where they all seem to follow suit in terms of the handling. There's not going to be a pronounced kind of emphasis there. And then the images themselves, we have to question what his relationship is to these images. You know, what is Hume's stake in the, these Afghan schools? I mean, it, it begs the question, could this also be about any number of other tragedies and atrocities that have happened in the past couple well, of years? Um, Anthony, I don't know if you buy the interpretation that the artist himself has offered um, in interview and also in uh, press release, but I, it, it would seem that he just felt that these images were so horrific and bombarding him that they had to be uh, wrested from the news cycle to give, be given uh, a more um, permanent or, or uh, deeper poignancy. Now, is, is that really what happens when you see very large glossy paintings at Matthew Mark's galleries that you uh, stand back from? Um, uh, you, you revisit the horrors of schoolhouses being blown up? Or is it just, oh, this is now what Gary Hume is doing? Is this okay? Is this working? Yes. Um, okay, first of all, I want to address uh, what the paintings look like. Um, there's a huge amount of abstract, well-painted abstraction around right now. These absolutely stand out. Um, <laughs> they're pitch perfect in shapes. In a way, I think of uh, some great minimalists like Ellsworth Kelly and, and John McCracken. I mean, the, 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 the shapes identified. Then, when you take that in, you see, you know, the gloss and all that, okay, it's, it's, but it's still, the, the painting looks so good that, that they, they inhale that, they take that in. You then try and relate it to the subject matter. He's dealt with that subject matter before. I mean, he's related to Osama bin Laden, he's related to an American sniper, and you think, what is the relevance here? There's, there's no sign of this here. Um, you know, there's no, there's no references to this work. Is he being glib? Is he being funny? Is he being pop-arty about it? Um, in that way, you think of, say, Warhol's disaster series or something like that. Um, I think he's serious. We live in terrible times, and I think uh, artists are aware of that. And <laughs> he finds an image, he refines it intensely and immensely, and uh, makes an incredible image. And no, we do not get the horror. I don't get the horror, but I get a very strong painting. Right, right. Um, Ava, do you go along with the notion of them as being very fine abstract paintings? Well, they're not abstract because they're yes. are figurative elements. But they're abstractions of... Yeah, uh, I mean, they're definitely stylized and there's that quality of, you know, of simplification that I think, um, you know, at least for me, I have to wonder with that kind of, um, yeah, that sort of like making fields of color out of things... You know, there is this sort of loss of detail, and maybe that is metaphoric as well as literal in terms of what this actually means in around violence somewhere else, you know, and the aestheticization of that. 
that happens, um, you know, as a large um, field of pleasurable, um, you know, painting, you know, and so, but I don't know, I mean, I'm not quite sure that it's every work's responsibility through citation to, to sort of, you know, have a politics of, you know, of social justice, but, <laughs> but they're, you know, they're, I wonder, you know, who, who wants this in their life, you know, like as a, given, given that there is this kind of, you know, sort of code shift you have to make to look at it between children and women, you know, and then this, this kind of, you know, sort of, um, yeah, like embellishments of the floral elements that are, you know, the kind of Matisse-like decorative there that, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a, cre you know, it's a little, I'm ambivalent obviously around it, and there's something that, yeah, there's a sort of undertow that, um, that I wonder, you know, what kinds of pleasures, a vision that we succumb to that then don't perhaps um, allow us to consider, you know, that source, you know, of, of, um, of suffering, I guess. I, I remember when his work segued from the, the doors and those, these would be painted on a kind of wooden support so they would be like literally doors and they'd be uh, very handsomely executed in in the, uh, the brushwork but but handsomely executed like a good door painter and um and then when it segued to imagery and when in particular for instance uh, a painting about kate moss that he produced um it seemed uh, although that was um a launch from a kind of conceptual humorous minimalism to uh, a conceptual humorous uh, figuration. Um, it, it was of a piece with where he had been, and then we, um, then in addition to that, um, the fact that it was a glossy painting about um, a glamorous model who appears in the pages of a glossy magazine, um, that also made sense. Then the wonky wheels with the uh, are there are. Uh, wonky wheels but um, it, this sudden access it's, it's, I'm not maybe a sufficient uh, connoisseur of Gary Hume to be able to say this with any authority but it seems um, a left of field access to a high moral and political um, consciousness is what's um, uh, taking me aback somewhat um Anthony, would you like to come back and, and tell me where I'm going wrong in that thinking? I'm not saying you're going wrong. Right. But uh, you were offering, you know, a, a defense of them as very fine abstract painting and then... Yes, yes, well... Well, it doesn't matter if they were... Yes, very fine painting and... Um, uh, well... I, I wonder what is fine painting. They're very, they're nicely executed. They're good graphic design. Uh, the colors are saturated and uh, the motifs are skillfully, ex skillfully pulled off. But is that what really fine painting is about, really? Those seem like uh, mechanical skills almost. Well, there are a great many designers working in, in these kind of the same way these shapes and these colors his work they look totally different they look you can tell that they do not look like design they look like art you know they and uh, they're brilliantly conceived they're obviously a result of 
endless drawing, endless re refining, a lot of thought. You know, they're, they're beautifully calculated and they work. Right. Yes. I, I guess I see these words. I see him as a conceptualist, as a painter like some of the other YBAs who saw, you know, who really bought the farm with this whole notion that that painting was over and that now you could use images, however sourced you wanted, wherever the sources might come from, as simply fodder for making a painting. I see that as a kind of shift that was taking place in painting, going back to Warhol, uh, alongside, uh, alongside a generation. And I mean, it was picked up in a number of other threads with a number of other kind of stylistic modalities, Richter among others. But I see that as a, as a strategy. It's a painting strategy in order to kind of be able to move through images without necessarily having a, a personal commitment to the, uh, the, the underlying message that the image might have. It's on the viewer to kind of take that, that image and kind of make of it what they will. Uh, but I, don't, I, I see that personally as a strategy that is quite distinct from other, other concepts about painting as it being a a kind of search and inquiry and an act of skepticism within itself that is af after some sort of uh, evolution, some sort of connoisseurship that that artist is after. I don't see that kind of leaping towards a kind of connoisseurship that you might see in Hume's paintings. They've, they've relatively, with some variation, stayed more or less the same in terms of execution and that he just happens to kind of bounce around from the image to another image to another image. But I, again, I want to stress that I, I see that as a kind of, um, there, there's a, a, a kind of wry wit, a kind of sardonic kind of quality to doing that as a painter. It's a conceptual strategy. Hmm. I definitely agree. I mean, they're called, when Goya calls something the disasters of war, you look at them, you know why they're called the disasters of war. This is called the destroyed schoolhouses. Well, you look at them, you're not looking at destroyed schoolhouses, you're seeing it, and he explains that, you know, there's an explanation, but it's not, it's not there in the painting. So what does it therefore really, what, what does it mean? What, what values does it really impart? for a, a painter who's essentially um, an art world painter. I mean, a, a painter whose images are vehicles for basically a kind of discussion about the conceptual status of painting. Um, to take on such um, a poignant and sensitive um, issue, is, is it, is it, is it, is it some crisis of conscience that he's saying, I've been fiddling while Rome burns, now I need to um, up the ante and produce my Guernica? Or is it um, actually more akin to his, his old chums, the Chapman brothers, uh, sort of taking on Goya um, and redoing the disasters of war and shop mannequins um, for what that imparts? And it's, it's saying, in a way it's saying, uh, nothing is beyond my reach and nothing is sacred if if um, I have work to do as a as an iconoclastic humorous conceptualist I, I f sort of want to believe the former but I'm finding myself drifting more towards the latter interpretation um, which means that the values that are imparted um, are not so positive but I don't 
don't think, I mean, it's obviously not salacious in the sense of the Chapman brothers where there's a sort of like reveling in, mm. in gore and violence, but there's, yeah, the, this rather seems to be sort of, I don't know, I use the word leeching out, but like these sort of fields of, of simple images in which it's very hard to have any affect in these works. And I think that's, maybe that's the game of it is that, you know, you're sort of draw, you know, like taking away the emotional intensity in that. And we've mentioned, you know, everyone's mentioned Warhol, but I think even in Warhol, there's a sense of anxiety that's very mm. pressing in the work around things like the electric chair or car crashes or suicides in which like repetition within those paintings becomes like a sort of drilling of the image that is, is precisely not about, you know, affectlessness, but like, that it, it it recurs and that's a sort of you know sort of hideous like mortality you know that we we repress about them but I think with these there's something that um, yeah that's that's it's it's not only uncanny but there's maybe something that in that affectlessness is is a bit empty you know um, emotionally and, and I wonder again who who wants that in their life as a sort of drained experience of vision alone without. Um, intensity? I don't know if that makes sense. They are, after all, children's paintings from the schoolhouses. They're not there. They're, that's, they're supposed to be happy. Well, some of them, though, are of blackboards and of the Arabic script. I'm not sure if those are exactly the children's paintings, but... No, I think they're not. Uh, I think, Anthony, they're a little more complex than that. They are. They often incorporate the child's hand, but I think they are extrapolations from reportage that shows the, um, the violent and uncanny juxtaposition of the nursery colors and the child drawing with the evidence of um, brutal destruction and, and acts of war. Um, and so therefore, um, I would imagine it would be interesting to see a catalog that reproduces the source images, but I suspect the uh, photography that inspires the paintings is a more stark juxtaposition and a more dramatic image uh, than the paintings could ever hope to be. And, and therefore, the paintings have a certain frivolity about them. One of the paintings was a blackboard. Yes. With, with things written on it in Arabic. Yes. Oh. Yes, but um, I repeat the word um, frivolity. Uh, there's a certain, you know, these are sort of, these are jolly pictures uh, in the tradition of um, Matisse's jazz that just happens to take its uh, source from... Uh, bombed schoolrooms uh, that have deeply moved the artists, but but, but uh. you know, to, to that, I think this, what's interesting for me is how, you know, the, he came out of a school of thought that's very distinct from the kind of socially and politically minded artists who are working today, where you know, it, it's, I, it struck me in looking at this work, I thought about an artist like Carol Walker in her first show at the Drawing Center in 1994, and how, you know, with those introduction of the silhouettes, we have this sense of the kind of benign, again, benign, disarming thing that you're familiar with that then has this incredibly sinister and uh, malevolent undertones to it. And um, 
And in a way, she kind of puts it, the onus, the responsibility on the viewer to then make determinations about what kind of responsibility she wants the viewer to have, as opposed to saying, okay, look, here's this terrible, horrendous, hellacious thing, and you should feel bad. Like she, It's kind of like, no, I want you to just have your takeaway, whatever that takeaway might be. I'm kind of standing, you know, I did my thing. If this is theater, I, I put on my act, and I'm now, you know, I'm backstage. I'm in the green room kind of thing which is a very different position than I think what the way that a lot of artists think about today, where they feel like they do need to be the bearer of the, uh, the kind of moral message uh, or virtue that the work is espousing, that they have to have a definable stake that somebody can pinpoint to. But I think this is what's so interesting, is that when there's not that definable stake or when it's within contradiction it actually creates a much more illuminating conversation because of course there are contradictory feelings oh, and perceptions around all of these things. Yeah, the, the last thing I would be advocating for is is um, a kind of simplistic, do-gooder kind of um, rub our noses in the shit of our desperate times and think about this, it matters, kind of didactic art, which is, I would agree how a lot of... Um, it's not conceptualist anymore, but a lot of um, th- um, political, politi- um, politically motivated current art is. I think we're going through another 1930s social realism uh, phase um, in in a, in a lot of contemporary art, and so to that extent, I well, I look back with nostalgia at the. Um, the ambiguities and the um, uh, of Kara Walker. Um, it doesn't seem to me that the YBAs are really trading um, in uh, a high stakes ambiguity of a Kara Walker or Anselm Kiefer like intensity. On the contrary, it's just a very blah, Sarchi-ish kind of um, uh, collision of sex, drugs, and rock and roll on the one hand, and um uh slick decoration on the other and it's it was um it was a very successful brand and a very clever funny kind of thing for a bit but um when one of its um exemplars becomes a sort of grand old man of painting and then extends the conceit to bombed out schoolrooms um it's not um it's not ambiguity that's engendered it's just um antagonism or or um or, or come on mate are you serious is 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 more the emotional reaction from me I think with this, I mean, as an appropriative practice, you know, taking these images from media and then simplifying them, it's so very different than something like Kara Walker, where Mm. she is inventively, you know, she's taking, of course, like the silhouette as a historical form, but all of those are invented scenarios, you know, and the narratives are so um, perverse, you know, in terms of like invention around desire and around fantasies of violence and racial power and, you know, and the characters that, you know, she's taking from history, Sambo or Piccaninnies, but like putting them in these like scenarios that are just, you know, very, very darkly inventive. And this is, yeah, I mean, this is like taking from media, but then prettifying it at best, or, you know, maybe in that ambiguity, you know, of having something that stylizes the source image, mm-hmm. taking away the details, you know, that, 
um, or specific and then just sort of focusing on these one or two, you know, each painting seems to have one or two sort of like moments of, of attention, you know, like one bare piece of script on a blackboard or a fragment of a woman's body, you know, so maybe those are a kind of attention that you give to it. But yeah, it doesn't seem to have any of, of that, you know, it's just, a, it's an appropriative thing, you know, it's taking and stylizing, so. Right, right. It's appropriating something that we weren't likely to have overlooked in the first instance. And usually appropriation takes something um, banal and then makes you rethink it or um, takes something that was hitherto sublime and pokes fun at it. But to take something that's that, that anyone um, with a kind of modicum of liberal conscience would, um, or just humanity, uh, would look at and say, oh, how sad, how terrible, and look at that kid's little decoration there with the bomb, with the mortar shelling. I mean, it doesn't, it's not something that was demanding of philosophical deconstruction. I mean, we're all having the same emotion, unless we were um, emotionally retarded in some way, uh, to, to these images in the first instance. So it's not like it's something that he has discovered in some obscure source. Um, um, if it was some fresco he found in a tiny little chapel in the Alps or something, then it would be, then his appropriation of it would be kind of interesting. But we all kind of saw those images and... David, I like one of the, uh, this is, you know, this is rather like uh, Andrew Serrano's Piss Christ in that the, mm. basically we've been discussing the title as much as we've been discussing the art. Mm. And it's the title has, in a way, changed the art to that extent. I mean, it's, it's, we're not kind of been talking about the painting we're looking at, we've been talking about... Well, that is true. How we can't... much of the title it resides in the art. Yeah, we, we're dealing with the art as a we're dealing with the exhibition as a generalized statement and of course it's an exhibition it's a show of pictures and some will be more moving than others some will be better um, aesthetically than others but i think it's nonetheless legitimate to to take on and confront and negotiate the underlying ethos of this strategy and of this show I mean, I think this is part of, I mean, to, to Anthony's point, I think this is part of his strategy, is that he's not, he's not really after questions about gesture and touch as being, as being a signifier for one's subjectivity, about uh, a sense of the, the hand being a sense of presence or... Um, or, or declarative. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't approach these in a formalist manner and feel like I would receive a lot out of that inquiry. It, it just right. there seems to be kind of a kind of repeated, um, again banal, so, sometimes illuminated, but mostly kind of matter of fact way that he's painting an image, um, and that what he's after is is between the title and the images, this ah. kind of, uh, again, contradictory read. Because he's not seeking to accentuate the juxtaposition that the original photographs presented. On the contrary, he is glossing over them to produce a unified graphic solution to his reading and memory of those images. 
And that's what's morally, I think, wrong with the pictures. Uh, but I think it's good that there is art out there that's allowing one a kind of Ruskinian moment of saying, you know, pictures can be morally wrong. Um, there is such a thing as an immoral work of art. Um, but um, uh, I, I don't feel corrupted from having seen them. I, I, uh, they are, let's say, let's say, I would allow my servants to look at these paintings. Um, Lady Chatterley's lover. <laughs> Luckily, I don't have any servants, but if I did, I would tell them it's okay to go and see Gary Hume. Um, I think we should move on to our next exhibition because here we have, um, in, a, in a much subtler form, we're now looking at uh, Elizabeth Hazen up at Johannes Vogt Gallery. Um, we have in a less um, demonstrative, less um, um, attention-grabbing kind of way, a similar set of issues of stylization, personal touch, and possible deeper subject matter. And um, Ava, I wonder if I could ask you to lead us on, on um, on, on Hazen, uh, what did you make of the show and did you find upon um, interrogating what the artist feels they were doing, did you find um, yourself convinced by that or did you feel that the paintings just spoke on their own terms? I mean, what I liked about the paintings was this play and landscape between perspectives. I mean, sometimes you didn't know if you were looking at something as a sort of plan view, you know, as a horizon in front of you, or other times if it would be aerial. And so the sort of move between space and how to reinvent something as old as landscape, right, as a sort of painting form, and the references to de Kooning in that, you know, in which so many of, you know, de Kooning's 50s and 60s paintings refer to landscapes, but it's hard to know where you are situated in that place, you know, what kind of perspective. And, you know, the references to memory, you know, seemed in a way sort of cloud, like, visually, just what's going on with these vectors that, like, kind of confuse you. And certain of the paintings or sort of spaces that are demarcated in these, you know, sort of blocks of area that you don't really know if you're looking at a map or you're looking at an actual, you know, horizon line. So that was, I thought that was an interesting, you know, way to sort of move between, um, you know, and again, like some, at times it even feels like an axiometric thing, like am I zooming down on this mm. in some way that, um, that you know, it's, it's sort of quite pleasant to sort of feel yourself destabilized in space around that. But the, you know, in terms of what the press release said, these relations to climate change that the work invokes and to memory, I was somewhat unconvinced about that because, you know, you can kind of tack that on to any... Yes. you know, discussion of, of, and these are pretty much abstractions, you know, and without like some something materially to hang on to, like what particularly about this, you know, these dimensions of canvas, these kinds of use of, um, you know, 
paints as materials themselves relating to, let's say, histories of, you know, like where these oils come from or pigment or whatever, you know. I mean, that just doesn't, it seems relatively disconnected from um, a materiality of, of what one could go to with climate. You yes. Know? Like as a sort of actual set of conditions of, you know, space and and place. So yeah. that makes sense to me. I, I it it goes back to what we were discussing a little earlier with this sense of we're living in a, uh, an age of a kind of when you talked about the new politicization of um, artists that um, in a way um, what happens when the the zeitgeist is for an overt political and environmental and social engagement that um, artists of a, an older idiom um, whose, whose investment and training is to produce actually a kind of lyrical abstraction, um, either they or their representatives and agents kind of tack on sort of, a, um, you know, a retrofit um, a kind of agenda that probably possibly isn't really there. But um, um, uh, Anthony, um, uh, Ava touched on the kind of, the way in which there's a kind of cartography in the uh, image, um, engendering a kind of ambivalence between the vertical and the horizontal when one is looking at the image. Uh, but combined with uh, a very handmade, generated kind of um, uh, gesture, and, and, and often a kind of cartoonery, it, it, it strikes me, um, and I wonder if I can get your professional uh, eye on that issue, because um, there seem to be shapes in some of the um, paintings, very uh, interestingly kind of suggestive shapes of test tubes, um, I saw a camel and a squirrel and a bit of one of them, and uh, um, uh, some other associations I won't go into in, in great detail, but um, um, it, it seems, I mean, of course, one can play the Polonius cloud game with, with any kind of lyrical abstraction of this kind, but it seemed um, the shape vocabulary uh, often has a kind of thought bubble feel to it, some of those, those fields and shapes. Um, did you feel some, did you feel kind of competing um, uh, graphic um, script, um, uh, calligraphic uh, forces at work? Uh, well, specifically, I, I'm not very good at this. Um, anyway, I speak quite loud. Uh, specifically, there, there were the cartoon shapes were a bit like, uh, I forget the name, uh, there was a guy who was much drawn on in the 60s, who was, uh, who was some of the artists, some, some people I don't all remember. But I didn't, I didn't find that very significant. I, I, didn't, I didn't think they were humorous or anything. Um, my feeling about it, and in a way it's the same problem or situation as with the last, which is that um, there's a lot of branding in the art world these days, and um, I do not remember artist statements being such a big deal. I don't even remember artist statements. I used to go to galleries. And mm. in fact, artists used to be fairly enigmatic about what their work was about. Uh, most artists I've spoken with say it, it didn't really matter to them. Well, Sean Scully most recently, whether people actually got the, the, inner, the inner drives and made them do particular art. Um, now, I think these are wonderful paintings, but uh, my, in a way, the anguish I felt at the show was that because of the title of the show, I knew exactly what the show was about. 
I'd read her, her thing as, as part of my due diligence. Uh, she went, she studied Google Earth, she, you know, she studied aerial photography, she's intensely interested in, in climate change. I knew exactly what the show was about. And I was wondering, what would it be like to come into this show as an inspiration, not seen the work before? Mm. Mm. You know, how, how would I have reacted? I'm, I know I would have still liked the paintings. Would I have known that's what it was about? Uh, in a way, I think so, because that, uh, when you go in, uh, they don't show up so well here. They, they, they're wonderful uh, directly. And that yes. uh, black one on the right. Yes, so let's not bother that, with that. That looks really ominous. Yes. Uh, when you're in the show. I mean, you, I, I think I would have got it. Mm. But I simply don't know. And that bothers me somewhat. It bothers me about a lot of shows these days when they tell you in advance exactly what the show's about and exactly yeah. what you're supposed to feel. Well, then, if you go to a museum, there are long texts that tell you what emotions you are having uh, <laughs> bef before you've actually even gotten past the text and looked at the paintings. We're not that bad yet in, in commercial galleries, but I, I totally get your point there, Anthony, that it's um, um, the... the, the um, it's like program music. The, the, um, the explanation precedes the experience. Jason. Well, yeah. I mean, who wants to be told what to think and how to feel? I mean, I, I've taken the position, especially in some of these recent, I mean, this show aside, some of these recent museum shows, I don't, I don't even bother to read these kinds of texts. I find them to kind of be um, actually offensive to kind of put, put on the responsibility of the viewer to have the affect pre-decided. I'm going into a space because I want to have a, n a number of potential affects, things that might you know, make me feel ways that I had no intentions of feeling, in fact. And that that's what the excitement of going into this space is, is that it's totally undescribed, not, not predetermined. So many things that I encounter on a regular basis tell me, you know, that this food is going to be great because Yelp told me so, or that, uh, you know, buy this car because it's, you know, a five-star rated whatever. It's like, I'm not going into this space for any of those kinds of concerns whatsoever. And I, 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 so I have such hard pushback against this kind of categorization that's taking place in the art world. Um, but this, I thought, was an example of very successful lyrical paintings that were about color and form primarily, and some allusion to a landscape. But this whole notion of them being about the Anthropocene or, or climate change, I think was a discrepancy that a lot of people run into about subject matter and content. You can have subject matter that might be that, but that doesn't mean that the content is in the thing itself. It might mean that that's where it sprang from. And and this was, I think I agree with Anthony, this I think was an example of perhaps a you know administrative role stepping in and saying we need to you know we can't have this be just simply about color and form we have to have it be something more definitive than that and let's come up with this moniker so here we go perhaps elizabeth had the google maps going right and she had those as formative generative stuff that she was working with but had i walked into this show and it was titled something abstract like mm. sky and sea or something like that or some some location i don't think i would have necessarily gone to anything about climate except for knowing that that's something that is a universal condition you know it's just it wouldn't have it wouldn't have made a much difference i think in my reception of the paintings and the fact that they are dealing with phenomena of layering 
and scraping away and that they have an archaeology and that, that, that some of the image is inevitably eroded means that without having uh, sort of beaten us over the head with an ecological agenda ahead of time, um, we might have gotten to that ecological place of our own intuitive, uh, as, a, as part of our own intuitive response to these uh, remarkably, um, I must say, moving lyrical paintings. I, I particularly love the way that they have a kind of underlying um, um, gesture that is um, scraped away and additive, and yet they retain this um, lightness of palate, this um, this freshness, this chirpiness uh, that belies that kind of process of their own making, and that's what gives them, I think, um, a very poignant, layered, textured um, um, sense, um, uh, which would make sense with the what we're now told is the way we should be interpreting them, but I'd rather they let us get there of our own accord via the paint and the strokes rather than the press release and the buzz, as it were. I do, I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just going to say in defense of the discursive field, I do like when I'm aware, made aware of some of the means by which things are made and some of the sourcing by which artists how they come to their images but yes there is this level of interpretive um, or dimension of interpretation that many times enters the discursive field immediately before you even seen the work <laughs> so yeah sometimes the how is much nicer than the why you know mm. I would like to know more about how these are made and less about you know what the, this, the impetus, yeah, what yes. the, or what the kind of you know, what the artist sort mm. of hopes as an intervention. I mean, these are, you know, the word lyrical. I mean, I don't even know what that means with respect to this stuff because it just feels like, is it because they're, you know, gestural and there's a kind of expressionist element to it? I don't know what stories they tell. You know, like well, I think they're lyrical in the sense that they, um, they unfold um, a kind of. Um, they, they, they have a flow that comes from their own gesture um, and so that's how they're they, they seem to be more lyrical than epic for instance um, if we're going to use I, mean, I think we tend to use the word lyrical just meaning it's it's nice and I like it, um, but but if but if we if you but you put me on the spot there and say why are they lyrical? Well, I say they're lyrical because they're not epic. They're not actually. There isn't, uh, despite the press release and despite the ostensible impetus or excuse for their making, uh, they actually don't have an agenda. They generate from their own. Um, uh, mixture of observational and um, expressive um, uh, approach and and therefore uh, that's actually what defines them as lyrical um, there was a ism called lyrical abstraction Dan Christensen and people well there was lyrical abstraction before them and there was there was Kand you know Kandinsky and I think if I gone to that show and seen it without it reading there's a wonder if you don't see it here there's a beautiful one with a triangle on the left Yes, I think I, I would have got the mapping out of that one. Yes, when, there were all these wonderful verdant ones, and then you see this one with a dark shadow in the middle. 
Yes, yes. You see there's something going on. There's a definite differentiation, isn't there, um, um, panel, between... Um, between these rather dark brooding ones with a kind of vacuum center taking us into a kind of darkness and those that have that kind of, uh, I use the word chirpy, but one could almost say kind of nursery palette to them, um, the pinks and the yellows and, and, and then with those sort of thought bubbles and, and suggestive shapes. Cool. Well, I think, uh, yes, I'm vindicated by my watch and thinking that we are at the uh, just before the halfway moment, which is a, an excellent moment at which to um, relieve the panel of the pressure of having to be the only ones with brilliant ideas and um, call upon our audience to share uh, their verdicts um, or uh, express their astonishment at our uh, inability to correctly read the true meaning of Gary Hume um, and or Elizabeth Hazen. So there is a roving mic um, and I already see a hand going up. So um, I see two hands. So um, good. Wait for the mic because we're recording. Thank you. Hi. Um, you know, I walked into the Gary Hume show briefly and then walked out because I didn't get any feeling from the paintings themselves. And I didn't read about them. And I didn't feel I wanted to read about them after getting no feeling from the paintings themselves. And so. Okay. That's my take on that show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just going back to the first exhibition, Gary's work, um, I'm thinking like, first of all, being from the region, being Iranian Arab from the Middle East, um, I'm, I'm actually hopeful that a British artist is tapping to this story and you know what's happening, but not necessarily in a very grotesque way, you know, because that I think like photojournalism covers that, and we've seen so many images um, like that. But um, is he sort of reminds me of Almadovar films, Almadovar, like he brings the subject matter like the most uh, traumatic stories in a very colorful um, atmosphere or ambiance. And I feel like if um, I don't speak Spanish, but if I don't follow the subtitles, I would never know about, for example, he has a film called Talonigui, which is about a relationship between a mother and daughter that it's very like multi-layered, complicated. I, I felt like if I don't follow the subtitle from the ambiance, I would never think that it's such a deep, traumatic um, story. So that's how I felt um, looking at Gary's work. And um, in juxtaposition with the sculptures, even if I don't read the press release, I would, then, I would get interested enough to go check the press release. So that was my take. Fantastic, thank you, thank you. Two very contrasting. Uh, reactions to the same exhibition, which is what uh, we want on both panel and in the audience. Um, yes, another hand going up there, I see. Good. Hi, um, my name is Kinza Najum, and I have a more general question from the panel. Like, if uh, we see the painting and it doesn't do what the artist intended, whose failure is it? Like, the audience who we think is smart and intelligent and would get it, or the artist failed to um, engage the audience in a way that he or she intended? Well, 
I think that's a great question to ask when there's an um, editorial associate of the Journal of Philosophy on the panel. I, I actually, um, my, my one trip to Yardo, I actually went with the, uh, I said, I'm going to write a pamphlet on the problem of intentionality in painting. And uh, I didn't write it um, because, um, well, it, despite my intentions, uh, the comp subject was, uh, is rather complex. Um, and I don't think we're actually going to necessarily uh, do it justice, but my two cents worth would be um, that you can, the, the intentions, um, a sign of good art is that it's, it's actually more interesting than the artist intended it to be. But Jason. Yeah, no, I, I, I kind of tend to agree with that. I think there's, for, for me, intentionality works in a way in which if the artist puts something out there into the world, that ideally it has a number of takeaways and perhaps maybe one or two more singular general takeaways that they can kind of latch on to. And when that's not the case, I think when the intentionality is where it's like a, such a small, narrowed target, I see that actually as a failure of both the work and the reception on the other end, because it means that there's a very specific thing that you're supposed to get in order to appreciate the thing, and that if you miss that, then well, then you've missed the work entirely. I, I, I tend to think, though, that if the artist has something that is so obscured, so complicated, that they're not able to address it in a way that is digestible for an audience, that it's a failure of the work to deliver itself to the, to the world, to a general viewing public. I mean, there's some things, of course, that might require me to kind of look something up in a book or read that press release or know a little bit of history about that artist. But that aside, this is what actually philosophers of art would call um, non-observable properties. So they say if a non-observable property, something that is about the work but isn't seen in the thing itself, if it completes the work, then it's actually a failure because like, I needed this extra information in order to have a visual experience. Experience. But if it, all of it does is actually supplement my experience, then it's a success of the work itself. And I kind of tend to agree with it. Fantastic. Some more comments? Um, critical? Yes, lots of hands going. No, not, not a second go, please. Um, <laughs> you went to the show and you didn't like it. We got it. So in the back row, please. No double dipping. Thank you so much. So, um... Who's your audience? What? Sorry. Who is your audience? Um, our audience, or the artist's audience, or my audience. You. Oh. Welcome. Like, nice to see you. It's, it's great to see you all. And, uh, um, but also, uh, a non-observable property is the uh, tens of thousands of people who will listen to the podcast afterwards. They are also our audience. Um, and also the paintings we're discussing. They, inanimate, uh, who was it who said, um, uh, no one hears more nonsense than a painting that's on public exhibition. <laughs> Anyone remember who said that? It's, uh, it's a great... Great, uh, it's a great line. Oh yes, it was the Goncourt brothers. Um, I, I happened to read it yesterday. So, um, but they are our audience. But I, I sense a philosophical um, uh, agenda behind that cryptic question that probably my banal answer has not satisfied. What would you say? Who would you think our audience is? And um, where are we going wrong? 
Can I, can I answer that? Yes. Okay. I, I just interviewed Mark Limpshire of Pace Gallery, who's opened this huge new place. Uh, Pace was studied by his father. He said, my father told me when he began, there were 250 collectors. He said, now that tens of millions, hundreds of millions in the world whom contemporary art is a major part of their life. Mm. I think it's 256 at this stage. But, <laughs> but, um, and Arnie, yes, but the lady at the back who asked that three-word three question, do you, do, you, did, uh, would you, do you want to amplify the question? Of course, I'm d denying the other gentleman the double dipping, but yes, wait for the mic and tell us, come on. It's just coming, it's just coming. Here it is, right behind you. And? Yeah. Thank you. What's your question? Uh, my question is, what's your, my question is, what really is your question? So my question is your question is my question is your question. All right, this is getting a little too Rexian. Um, let's uh, thank you very much. And one, oh yes, you have the mic. Please go ahead. Hi. Um, I hope my questions. Yes. Clear comment question. So, I, it's kind of the same. I've noticed when you were talking about Gary Hume, you yes. did not mention irony. And right. I was curious because I think that the where he comes from is this ironic Yeah, base. he's English. And right. then now he's go... <laughs> yeah, no, no, okay, please. Yes, but now he's going to a supposedly less ironic, and it's like if someone else had done the same paintings that was didn't have an ironic history, would you believe them or even want to you know i guess that's no no i totally get your question because that that's 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 the more insidious intentionality is that we've seen gary hume's ironic paintings about hospital doors and we've seen his ironic painting about kate moss here is painting about bombed schoolrooms. can he be being ironic and then the answer, well, yes, he must be because it's Gary Hume, but no, he can't be because they're bombed out schoolrooms. Therefore, the irony is in a way more intense or more ambiguous, etc. And so I think extrapolating from your question, we would have to say it's not anecdotal to say Gary Hume used to do this, now he's doing that. Um, he must know the potency of his own reputation um, in making new work with a new subject. That's, that's, is it fair to say that um, notwithstanding the myth of going into the gallery with virgin eyes and indifferent to the press release and don't care what the artist has done in the past, the reality is that whenever an artist uh, with a reputation produces something new, it has the patina already of the artist's reputation. Yeah, and I think in this case, you also have the evidence of what you're looking at, which is extremely slick painting on aluminum, which is very slick too. <laughs> you know, so there's just this shininess and um, yeah, that, that really doesn't, it refuses depth, you know? So just even at the level of material and, and appearance, you know, you're struggling here with like how, you know, as it's as stylized as it is, like where are where to penetrate those um, 
the implications of all of that slickness. So I think, you know, just to get to this idea of like how it's made and what it looks like, you know, if you're, if it looks slick, mm. it might be slick. <laughs> I don't know if irony is what, you know, yeah. the, I think, I mean, something that we're, we're kind of also not really addressing in this conversation is how, well, a lot of political work, socially minded work also sells for half a million dollars, mm. several million dollars in some cases to collectors who have, you know, anything but perhaps the best of intentions in terms of uh, their uh, respect to situations in the world. I mean, I, th- I think this whole business of somehow that the art world um, is an ethical place and, 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 and traffics and ethics, I think, is a very dubious, dubious concept. <laughs> And, and also the very fact of juxtaposing your paintings of bombed-out schoolrooms with wonky wheels, that ought to put us on the right track. Or the wrong, the wonky track. One last comment. Yes, the gentleman with white hair. Um. Yeah, hi. I, I think it, it was possible to go to a Hume show and not have any idea that it was about what you've been discussing. I mean, at least it was for me. I went to the show. I had no idea what it was about. I saw the title. But it didn't make me curious to find out. And now I hear all of this, uh, which is very compelling, uh, but it doesn't match up with the painting. So to me, you kind of wonder, what's the role of the art critic, too, then? I mean, the point to me, I thought, for the art writer is to amplify and give you greater depth to what the painting is already communicating. You know, but if the com- if the painting isn't communicating any of that to you, then well, then what is the art writer doing by you know giving us all this extra information? You know, I mean it it doesn't match up is is what I'm saying, I guess. Okay, I I, I can accept that criticism. I mean, we could have gone about this discussion very differently and said these claim to be about bombed out schoolrooms, but they so don't look like it. Let's ignore that and let's just enjoy them as paintings. Which one did we like best and which color relationships uh, would we have wanted to put in? In one word. Yes. Uh, Gary Hume was interviewed on this and he said he was struck by the fact that all this coverage of carnage in the Middle East that he saw photographs of destroyed schoolhouses and he saw the children's paintings there. And he was struck by the poignancy. And that was one of the things he was trying to communicate. Yes, exactly. We, we, he, he's saying, I'm now a middle-aged man and I have a heart. And the paintings, are not, the paintings have not caught up with his um, noble um, character, have they? They're still ironic, slick, YBA. Um, um, slaps in the face. So, the, I'm sorry. That, that, is the, that is the discrepancy at the heart of this experience. You've got Gary Hume, the middle-aged moralist, uh, and, uh, 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 whose hand is still kind of making Gary Hume's. <laughs> anyway, I think it's time for us to look at another video. Uh, no, well, a little later, we're going to look at part two now. So um, we're going to go explore the world of Diana Cooper and Anoka Faruqi and David Driscoll. We now turn our attention to Diana Cooper sightings at Postmasters in Tribeca. Again, quoting from the press release, Diana Cooper has written, quote, 
What I make is a byproduct of how I experience the world. I have no sense of direction, so any object can potentially become a landmark, a point of interest. They are markers without which I am lost. Once I'm in my studio, images of these markers suddenly fall into patterns or structures or become wonderfully abstract. The ordinary becomes unrecognizable, wonderful, mysterious. Stop and look and then look again could be the subtext of this show. So much art making is about framing the world in ways that enable you to see what escaped your attention. But in my work, a frame can be both a way of focusing or one of obfuscating. I am repeatedly struck by the difficulty of pinning down anything visual. Things are always more than they first appear to be. The final exhibition we are discussing this evening is Anoka Faruqi and David Driscoll's Relative Brightness at Koenig and Clinton Gallery in Bushwick. This is not the first time this series of work has been presented by the gallery, but it is the first time that Anoka Faruqi's partner and collaborator David Driscoll is recognized as an equal party to the work's creation. Quoting the press release, Paintings presented within the exhibition build upon previous bodies of work. Among their prior circle paintings, they have exhibited two main types, rainbows and volumes. Their rainbows are primarily concerned with translating spectral qualities using low-contrast juxtapositions with a white top coat. And their volumes present seemingly solid forms built from high-contrast gradients. Meanwhile, the newest works deploy a mix of these approaches to deliberately consider light, specifically the quality of twilight. Who hasn't started? Um, Anthony, am I right in thinking that you haven't been called upon to open a discussion yet, have you? Um, I have a slight problem with this show, though. Oh, yes? I, I, I made a brief... I, I like to pay a couple of visits. I paid an initial visit a long while ago. I went back today and um, couldn't get in because the sidewalk had collapsed and there were police everywhere and they wouldn't let me in. And so um, I'd rather start the next one. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yes, you, you had told me that. And I was, I was impressed at the, the idea of a critic arriving at an exhibition and the sidewalk collapsing. That it, 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 it had, um, uh, especially the, the, the gentleman had, had undermined the confidence of a critic to deal with an exhibition. So that made me feel, yes, critics really must matter if the sidewalk collapses. Um, um, but it may just be an extension of the that whole obfuscatory, deconstructive side of this um, exhibition. Uh, it may also have nothing to do with Diana Cooper or Anthony Hayden Guest and just be um, one of those unfortunate things that happens in New York. Um, Jason, um, this is not program art, is it? You know, th this first exhibition, I would not characterize as programmatic. It definitely seems as though there's a there's an armature, 
of trying to create up spatial conditions that allow you to have ocular perceptive experiences. But I feel like the way that she arrives at it each time is pretty inventive and experimental. So I would say, no, it's not, it's not programmatic. Right. Um, but she has nonetheless, um, tropes, um, or, or, despite the diversity of the exhibition, when one sees each piece, it's a Diana Cooper, isn't it? Um, So what is it then about strategy, sensibility, um, handling that makes us think and feel um, that this is not a group exhibition, this is uh, a sensibility at work? Do you have any uh, clues on that, um, Ava? I mean, this, the projection into space of this relief sculpture is is pretty disorienting that you have to sort of move around them in this awkward way and that they often have to do with spaces that themselves are awkward. Um, she talks about um, the source of one being an elevator that she found both claustrophobic and vertiginous in China and then the surveillance cameras, you know, sort of staring at you through these... Um, you know, as they kind of come out of the wall and the one that's scrim with that construction, um, that that sort of quotation of that material that's used in construction sites to sort of veil, you know, um, what's going on, you know, behind the, the hoarding or whatever, that orange netting. So there's this odd sense of space that you have. And unlike, I mean, they're not paintings and they're not sculptures, but they are this kind of odd relief that come out into space. So, yeah, so there's a, um, yeah, there's some kind of, you know, relationship there between like the, what she depicts and the accumulations and patterns that are created and then the way you have to sort of move around them. I'm not really sure, I mean, as someone visiting the show that that moved me so tremendously, you know, as a, as a technique as I sort of went through each of these stations, you know, you kind of move around, you know, through the space as the, these approaches. And I, I don't know, in the end, I didn't quite have like a sort of sense of a totality of what this, it just seems like it could iterate endlessly, like, and this is my thing that looks like an arcade game. And this is my thing that is about an elevator, you know, and it's just like these moments of, of experiencing technological, you know, sort of like the, the experience of being somewhat disembodied by technologies and sometimes of surveillance, but I wasn't quite sure what the, the big takeaway of that yes, was. Yes, yes. She's an artist who um, very often um, will produce a spectacular and singular installation as her exhibition. And um, it's therefore um, kind of instructive, but at the same time possibly disconcerting uh, to see a more traditional show of one piece, second piece, third piece, fourth fourth piece. Um, And um, perhaps her other exhibitions have sort of tutored us to to want to see a whole gestalt. And I felt this was um, like a traditional dealer show of here are a selection of Diana Cooper's um, tastefully and intelligently installed, but not an installation um, did you have a sufficient memory of that brief first pre-pavement collapsing visit, Anthony, to be able to concur with that? Yes, indeed. Uh, the earlier ones, um, I, I feel most art, when you look at it, you're looking at a completed object. There's a particular sort of art that to some extent tells the story of its making. It's a kind of narrative piece. 
I think that's especially true of pieces that involve lots of different things, lots of different texts and so forth. And uh, you get involved in the story, and the story is often fascinating. And that, that's the true of her work. It's also true of these smaller pieces to some extent. I also get a feeling more in the former than these. And maybe it's just because of my own personal obsessions that, that I, um, I, I think of some children's uh, fiction, like Alice, and, uh, Alice books and early Nesbitt, the, the child story writer. You know, the, the finding wonderful qualities and little really very ordinary objects, you know. Mm, mm. In Alice it'd be symbols or something. Here it's little sprockets and whatever. And um, I, I find it fascinating. I also prefer the big installations. But I also, my final thought on this is that, and I've been saying this for a year, no one ever listens. I think the third great master of, of modernism after uh, Picasso and Duchamp is Kurt Schwitters. And in fact, it had an enormous effect, you know, just picking stuff up and putting it together has become just a huge discipline of itself. And it's born, and she is very much of, the, of that field. That, that's really what happened. Yes, but with Schwitters, we get both the bus ticket that's galvanizing as a thing in itself, and we get the Mertzbau, the Cathedral of Erotic Misery, so the, the big total gestalt. And so, in fact, uh, uh, summoning Schwitters, I think it's brilliant, because, but, but it actually underlines, perhaps, um, the tension that we have when dealing with Diana Cooper um, of um, the whole and the part, um, the, the, the magical mystery of um, the reinvented little bit and the um, perhaps more philosophical totality of the, 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 the world that it describes in its elaboration. Um, if we had to choose, do we like the parts or the whole better? Is that a, it, just to reduce it to a kind of formal banality? Uh, um, let me try to phrase that more intelligently. Um, uh, do we feel that the, the DNA of her, I don't want to say message, but her, her, um, her thing, is the... Is the is that her, her, her sensibility, her, um, uh, no, well, I'm going to say thing, uh, because it, it's a mixture between message and sensibility. So that is her thing, is the DNA of it in the handling of the individual materials, or is that in a way just her handwriting or her, like... Like with some poets, it's the choice of word is so perfect. Uh, others, you say, don't get seduced by that. You see the whole line, see the whole stanza or whatever. And I, I, I often wonder with Diana, um, she's an artist, uh, I think she's like a artistic first cousin of Sarah Z in a way, that um, is it the ecology of how all this comes together and the fact that they are like Schwitter's bus tickets is incidental or um, it's just her mode, her style or is this bigger gestalt actually just a way of homing in on the, the weird beauty of the found or reconditioned bit? 
Well, I think the Sarah Z show that's up now is a really good contrast in the sense, I mean, maybe this lacks a certain mystery that that black box environment of the Sarah Z and the, the like Mertzbau, like accumulation of like personal, like deeply cathected objects with like seemingly random bus tickets or, you know, just the, the found trash of life is that's a really interesting ambiguity that C is exploring in here. There's a kind of cleanness and then the way in that very, very, very well lit space that each piece just sort of is this exploration of one experience of technology and then it doesn't seem to have that that kind of crowded clutter which is I think perhaps more what we navigate not just moving as urban subjects technologically invested in our iPhones but but really just as that kind of um, sort of bombardment you know the sensory bombardment of of how we kind of negotiate you know all of the the objects you know the world is so full of things and all these forms have meaning and then there's this kind of like paranoic like sense of like how to negotiate and I think with the um, the Diana Cooper it's so clean and it kind of lacks that that form of like of excess that the Z gives you such a, a strong sense of like how hard we work just to you know to make it through all of this attention and inattention that we're, we're sort of toggling through so I, I like in her in the Cooper that she talks about attention and these sort of childlike moments of, of sort of finding something that you you know sort of grapple with as a sort of you know as a, a mental image and then sort of imaging it like through material but but I think perhaps it, it becomes too um, yeah maybe just too too much of this discreteness of, of the surveillance camera the elevator the arcade game and not that commingling of all of those right. there, there were you know I felt the show was it was mixed in that it felt like either the entire thing needed to be an installation or there needed to be fewer works in order for you to actually see what was in the show. Like it didn't quite have a, a head about how, like what its identity ultimately was. There were two that I thought were really successful. There was a, a pink one, I think it was called like name or something like that, um, where it was a series of, of circles and rectangles. It almost went up to the top of the ceiling and then started to kind of come off towards the floor a little bit. Uh, and there were some like reflective surfaces in that one, some like mirrors. And there was another, there was a white one that kind of operated in a little bit of a similar way. It almost felt like a vanity table where somebody might do their makeup or something like that. And I thought those were, those like a kind of a feminist critique there of kind of, of the gaze being on oneself, about gazing at oneself, about, about that whole kind of scenario there. Those little pots with paint. Yeah. Sort of cosmetic. Yeah, yeah. They had a kind of cosmetic read to them. Um, other works, though, on the other hand, there was one that had this kind of large orange awning that kind of came out into space. I felt like was one that felt too close to like this kind of diorama like through the looking glass kind of like thing where I was like this this feels like the kind of approach that again she's working with this aesthetics of like the childhood wonderment of, of things and of looking um, but it, it didn't feel like it was realized in a way where it felt seamless and kind of mysterious about itself the, the materials were so foregrounded as saying look at me I'm foam look at me I'm this other material and the ones where I feel like the material is somehow embedded with within the context of a thing, those ones for me worked. 
great. Um, before we turn our attention to our final exhibition of Anoka, Faruqi, and David Driscoll, um, I did neglect to mention earlier that um, the review panel and Art Critical are very generously supported by uh, the gallery at One Grand Army Plaza, which are continuing their lovely tradition of hosting a, a reception for us afterwards. So in case that gets lost in the panic of our kind of summation of the evening, let me just say that um, following uh, the conclusion of the program, uh, please join us for um, uh, a glass of something and a nibble at something um, over the road um, at um, the One Grand Army Plaza. It's the white Richard Meyer uh, building on the corner of uh, Eastern Parkway and um, Grand Army Plaza. Um, and um, they have a current exhibition, and I uh, just posted the ad for it, but I'm Gotten the name. Tell me the artist's name. Manuela Piliacci. Um, her exhibition can be seen and enjoyed over the refreshments um, um, at nine o'clock or whenever we finish, whichever is obviously earliest or later. Well, whichever. <laughs> uh, forget that. Yeah, when we finished. Right. Um, uh, yes, Faruqi and Driscoll. Um, now this is, um, um, we want to absorb our gaze and our intelligence as critics in the paintings themselves and not be spun, no pun intended, into anecdotal, uh, incidental um, trivia. But it is a bit amuse a bit weird, isn't it, that um, uh, an artist is, uh, a body of work is presented as the work of an artist, and then um, then we get both artists. I suppose it, there are some precedents for it. Um, it's usually not, it's usually a female rather than a male who's been overlooked the first time round. But I'm thinking of those, those chairs and all the furnishings that used to be attributed to Le Corbusier, which are now um, Le Corbusier and... Charlotte Perriand, exactly. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, it seems that um, the way Maggie Clinton explained it to me is that uh, it was, she rather nobly put it, their mistake as a gallery that um, they had misinterpreted them as the product of one genius, where in fact two geniuses were at play uh, together making these works uh, Faruqi and Driscoll. Um, anyway, that aside, um, what are the what are the pleasures to be had from the circles of these artists, Anthony? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> my, my mind was wrong. No, no, you were you were in the spin of these paintings. Uh, I, I think this work was. <laughs> Talking about ironies beginning, this work for me was a rich and delicious irony. I've always been fascinated by art and technology. There was a book by a Marxist called Eric Hobsbawm, which he said, um, uh, Walt Disney was probably not as good an artist as Mondrian, but he was much more revolutionary. And he went on about, you know, the revolution of animation, da, 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 da. And that whole line of thinking was that at the beginning of modernism, uh, uh, suprematism in Russia, futurism, cubism, 
They were created by the First World War, they were created by science, they were created by this and that. And then the, that book by Hosborn was called The Failure of the Avant-Garde because, you know, he said the easel painters lost the plot. That's not his word, you know, they became irrelevant. Uh, well, of course, this is nonsense. Uh, but it's been interesting recently, and in this very, these arts we've been talking about, Technology is more and more becoming part of the part of the uh, armament of, of, of works. I mean, we spoke about Google Earth. Uh, these artists um, invented their own machine. Uh, this work, I won't explain how it's fabricated or made, but what's fascinating to me here is that uh, this work. Oh, we're not. We're, we're supposed to be looking. Aren't we looking at the? Oh, yes. Um, Booth, if you could give us, move from Diana Cooper to uh, the fourth PowerPoint, please. Um, and a good moment to remind the panelists that we're not turning around pointing at this screen, but we're describing the works with our perfect ekphrastic skill that we have as critics. <laughs> but... Um, Are we seeing, anyway, the, the images you will see, we're going to see them, yes? They're going to see them, we're going to describe them, yes. <laughs> okay. Um... Well, they look like they're based on uh, the, the, the woman, come, I think from Bangladesh, she comes a, a culture deeply involved with patterning, and all her life she has made these fastidious, highly wrought patterns, which, when you first see them, uh, she did the thing, a, a whole project called Houndstooth. You, you, you think you're looking in a tailor shop, you think it's a Houndstooth check jacket or something. In fact, it's, it's a painting. And... What's fascinating to me, especially with this new work, they're they made by uh, 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 this machine, and yet, if you see... With the machine. What? Made with the machine. I mean, sorry, made with a machine, but manually with a machine. And when you see them reproduced uh, online or reproduced in print, they look kind of boring. Mm. But when you actually see them up close, they survive because they are living art, because they're paintings. You see the little irregularities, you see little mistakes. They become really fascinating, dynamic works of art. Uh, as prints, they're silly, in my opinion. Saved by the glitches, then. Yes. Right. Um, Jason, would you go along with that? Yeah, I'd go along with that to an extent. I mean, I think the there's a machine aesthetic that these works are working with. And yet there's these kind of um, explorations of color and opticality that the works are after as well. I think it's only by virtue of the, the incidental mark making where there's you know, some opaque area that happens uh, alongside all of that perfection that makes them interesting. The question for me is like how how far can that project go? How far can the project of the machine being able to kind of create a certain kind of color pattern uh, surface like like what's what's the extent of that? My other question for the work too is is there is there any critique of that? You know, I think often of like Donald Judd's machine aesthetic and how there's a very very subtle under 
underpinning of this relationship to industry that is at the height of you know late 60s 1970s and uh, and then we see a kind of post-industrial society on the other end of that I'm, so I'm curious about what where, where the work is trying to position itself with respect to machines do you think um, Ava that there's um, the possibility of irony with all this craft perfectionism um, I don't yeah, I'm going to sidestep that question just to say what I think, <laughs> which is, I mean, what I am really interested in with this work is that in the history of geometric abstraction, there's an emphasis on perceptual experiences as mediating a kind of retinal vibration that is actually happening in the eye, and then a kind of cognitive thinking about what you see without seeing. You know, you can sort of close your eyes and still see, right? And and perceptual experiences, particularly in the history of geometric abstraction, are where that's couched. Now, something like op art, you know, became problematic as it emphasized the retinal and that vibrational field. And then, you know, and in a way, people like Bridget Riley, there was this kind of feminization that happened around op art, that that was merely physical experience and that the patterning and decoration was something really problematic. And I think the gendering of that as a phenomenological experience of the body actually embodied you know, with this eye and this apparatus that sees, I mean, Bridget Riley once said very sort of provocatively that she first painted for the mind's eye and then she began to paint for the eye's mind as though our body actually might have physical experiences that determine, you know, what we think about what we see with without sort of couching it in this like zone of perception at all, that there's like a physical reaction. And I think that that is something that's really important about this work is that, you know, it's recovering this stuff about op that I, you know, that I think has something to do with where pattern and decoration became disparaged. Hmm. And there's something to be said for for this physicality. The physicality is the, the handmadeness. Uh, it's, 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 it's the glitches, yes, but even, even without the glitches, I do feel it was, it was telling, and I, I didn't mean to pounce on and least of all patronize uh, Anthony, but uh, when he said these made by the machine, and I so corrected with the machine, um, it, it seems to me actually that these, it's very clear that the artists um, strive for something and if they don't get it they scrape away start again that there um the the sides of the canvases uh often reveal uh the the number of drafts as it were to get that specific effect that they're after um that they are actually kind of muddled along intuitive um basically essentially painterly um exercises that happen to use um a, mach a machine, uh, which is, I, I gather, a pretty low-tech, simple affair that's essentially not all that different from a potter's wheel or a turntable a for an LP. A rake. It has a rake, and um, it, it obviously requires uh, the kind of sensibility and finesse of the sort of person that um, goes and rakes a platonk field or a, um, or a tennis court uh, between games um, uh, because uh, and that's I think where Mr. Driscoll has come in as a credited uh, equal party but um, uh, to follow the Cartesian uh, mind eye split I think the artistry is mostly from 
um, Anoka Faruqi. Um, if, if, as I understand it, uh, Driscoll is responsible for the execution and Faruqi for the um, color choices. But I think we also just have to pay the courtesy to any artist duo of assuming that they are a, a duo and if they wish to present as a duo, that's fine. Um, but yeah, it's, I think they're delicious. I just think they are um, very clever works because uh, they are um, sumptuous. Um, I, I totally concur with Anthony that um, they're boring in reproduction. They have to be experienced because of their, not just because of their scale or the actuality of the surface, but because of the, um, I think the actual effects are either lost in reproduction or um, unnaturally exaggerated in reproduction. And that the, the subtlety of how they actually work in person is um, axiomatic. And, I, and that um, um, they're also delicious because they, they throw up so many um, references to uh, the, the early years of abstraction, uh, to, to futurism, um, as well as obviously later um, uh, luminaries of, of op and um, 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 concretism. But um, um, yeah, it is an interesting thing though, glitches. I mean, the way we're supposed to, with Mondrian, uh, he, he envisioned, Mondrian envisioned that painting would become obsolete as his vision uh, would permeate industrial design and we would all be living in Mondrian's and we wouldn't need to have these dinky little painted Mondrian's anymore. Um, but so that there's an example of an intention that one is very happy to discard and ignore and scoff at essentially because he didn't realize that because of his own painting deficiencies they would get cracks in them which would make them 10 times more interesting um, but so is that what's going on here as well well I mean it's it's hard to say I mean there might be a kind of post-human kind of relationship here. Whenever I see somebody bring in the machine, be it Wade Guyton, someone else, it's it's suggestive of some other force entering into the painting as having equal say in the direction of its execution. And, um, and for me, that always suggests something of, of a critique, that there's some criticality involved. I mean, we also have to say that geometry isn't neutral. I mean, all these modernist notions of geometry being um, this kind of universal or sacred, uh, these, these concepts, I mean, we through Foucault, through the 1980s, we had all of this critique of geometry being a kind of uh, purely neutral place. And, uh, and so there has to be some stake in it. I agree. They're very sumptuous and su seductive paintings. Uh, the surfaces are immaculate. Um, I'm, I'm looking for the critique. Yes. Uh, use the mic, please. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, we're going out, I think, on a huge issue, which is, which is AI and all that, AI and robotics and their increasing possible effects on the art world. Um, I've seen stuff made by AI that looks as perfectly good hotel art. Um, I went to the Silicon Valley Art Fair about three years ago, and um, 
75% of it was just dealers trying to sell stuff to rich people in Silicon Valley. But a quarter of it was actually people doing really interesting stuff with, with algorithms, and including algorithms that made paintings, and including algorithms that could, could replicate almost any painting style. It's scary. It is, but the, the relief is that these paintings yeah. have nothing to do with that whatsoever. And including the pigmentation and all of that. Right. You know, it's, it's not just all flat. Um, these are very low-tech paintings. They happen to use a spin ink. They happen to use a wheel. But, yeah. you know, wheels have been around a while. And uh, this is pretty low-tech stuff. Um, well, if I could say, I yeah. mean, I think that speaking of technology with respect to these, the associations around records and CDs, that moiré mm. pattern, the interline Twitter is what it's called when you have different kinds of vibrational fields that happen with pattern on screens because of the striations of how electrons move across television screens that this references. So it's in this kind of zone of the technological eye yeah. or something, technological eye. But on the other hand, you know, when you are in front of these, you're seeing paint, you know, you still do see that there are, um, you know, the, the relativity of these different colors, you know, together is creating that moiré effect, you know, because certain um, contrasts are happening. And, and also as objects, you know, the paint goes around them and encrusts the sides of the linen in ways that make it really like goopy and strange, you know. Yes. So you have this like slick front with all the, and then the glitches that make it less slick and then you have this kind of weird thing where the That's paint layers. Kind of index yeah. of the colors they've gone through to arrive at what they have done, uh, arrived at. But it's, it seems to me, uh, Jason, I, I I, I see you want to say something, but I, I just I, I I did want to say that for me the what's deliciously ironic about these paintings is that the iconography is of tech, but the execution is actually um, despite the tech look, actually hands-on and they are painterly choices at all. I asked the gallerist, um, could, a, could a computer could a computer program make these? Uh, she said, computers can't make mistakes. I said, they can be programmed to. <laughs> I, I was going to say that I think these are hyper-real paintings and that they're, they're, there's a kind of photorealism that is kind of through an image, that there's an image that is being generated through the technology and that that is a... Um, is once removed from perhaps a kind of uh, independent choices, that choices are being delineated to something else and that that something else also kind of influences the aesthetic decision-making. And so there's a kind of uh, a back-and-forth dialogue there. It, but it's, it's, there are secondary and tertiary images. That's the thing. There's the, um, there's the choice of two or three colors that... Um, are in the final layers that produce the primary effect. But the secondary effect is the, the moiré, which is basically a generated interference. And then the tertiary pleasure is the glitches, the quirks, and the evidence of the handmadeness of these um, quote-unquote techie-looking um, confections. And um, so I, I think to to have that many balls in the air is quite ballsy. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, it's a good place for a painting to be at. One final point about that. Please. No. Well, I think that that, I mean, she has 
reference Joseph Albers's work a lot, and I think as a project of repetition, it's rather interesting too to keep doing the same thing over and over again. I mean, if you think of Albers's Homage to the Square, you know, a 30-year project, a production of thousands of very similar pictures in which color you know, becomes a container for variation in this very simplified, you know, repetition structure embedded squares. And here this, you know, mm. this kind of conic or, um, you know, disc-like concentric circles is, is somewhere in which so many different variations can be explored around um, color relations um, that, you know, it's, it's a commitment that is a rather yeah. interesting one to just, you know... They're like her sonnet form, mm -hmm. as it were. <laughs> but with, with, without the didacticism of... Um, Albers. But I think, you know... But I, Albers is poetic. Well, well yes. I mean, I think for him it was this, this project of, yeah, of trying to um, never make a masterpiece. It's a mm. pretty... I mean, that, that's the opposite of didacticism. But tellingly, unlike um, Damien Hirst's spin paintings, um, actually, these are paintings... They have a secondary and a tertiary subject that's not... Um, clearly preordained by the artists, but that said, they are not reliant upon chance. They are authored um, <coughs> images. But, but glitch. And one, one point about this show in particular is that some art, I think, um, they shouldn't all hang together. I've known the, I've known major major museum shows that practically destroyed careers. I'm not going to mention anyone. And I said, to the, you know, I said these would look ravishing singly. These are what yeah, together. They, she said, next show. That's what we're doing. Uh, they simply too many get. They, they, I, 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 ah, you felt it was overhung. Yeah, yeah. You, you did? Okay. I'm not. I thought it was rather tastefully hung, and I, I wanted to see. Um, without them becoming like a, a shop. I did want to see as many as possible because um, uh, it goes to what I think Ava was saying about that Albertian um, uh, dedication of project. But that's why we have the review panel to get different points of view. And I, I was just gonna say one last thing. I, I think in contrast to Albers, yes. there's not the kind of fetishization of surface that, um, that is taking place in these paintings. And, uh, and, th and that there's a kind of humility that's involved in Albers' project as a result to kind of, like, I think that's where we result in this kind of poetic read. Right, right. Excellent. Um, so, audience, um, uh, Diana Cooper and Anoka Faruqi and David Driscoll. I see a hand in the front, or oh, the second row. It is the front row, I suppose. Yes. So I just wanted to touch on a couple of ideas that kind of came up in the second talk, the second show, but relate to the first. Uh, first, that, and Jason talked about geometry, and then Eva, you were talking about the, the sort of mind and sort of the eye, the mind's eye. And then uh, one thing that sort of tied both of these shows together is that while the sort of subatomic physics, we, we can't experience it. And then there's the sort of macro geometry we, we can experience, but we're trying. I think both of these artists have this link to uh, somebody like Stephen Hawking was trying to make a bridge between our geometry and the macro scale and subatomic physics. But both of these artists have found a way to kind of get us there, but it's not 
a physical thing like string theory. So you're there, but you're ripped between sort of being viscerally in your geometry of how you present, and then there's the space in the work which is suggestive of a space that you can't physically get to that's subatomic. And I think that that's one of the things that's most interested me about Diana Cooper's work. And then to be more precise about, I thought you guys gave her a little bit of short time on what was there and what's not there in, say, I mean, I feel like her work is this kind of cathedral, this palace of rooms that she's building up and up. And, and I feel like she's between floors in this palace, building another space for us to get to. And that has to do with this, uh, she's introduced a lot of uh, representation in, in this show. And I think that that's sort of like where she's kind of failing up in in a way that is very interesting in this you know like we kind of know her way of being between our physicality and the sort of suggested physicality the subatomic thing and i think that, that that that's something that's there and and these works do perform some of those same functions and i mean it just kind of happenstance that you had them two together but uh, those were my basic thoughts i wondered if you had any thoughts to follow on that yes, I, I very, very valuable contribution. Thank you very much. I don't feel that we necessarily need to augment it. Um, so, uh, um, uh, any other comment on Cooper or Faruqi and Driscoll would be welcome. Um, or perhaps we are all thirsty and ready for um, a continued conversation on subatomic um, readings of Cooper and Faruqi and company and Driscoll. Um. And Yes. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say uh, about the works behind you right now, the second show or the fourth show that was talked about. Yes. Um, I, I just think that um, they are interesting in sort of bridging the, um, the space between painting and object, right? Because they're both three-dimensional, if on a sort of textural level, but also colorful and um, just interesting um, for me as a furniture maker I see this problem arise in galleries a lot like what is it is it fine art or is it design object and it's interesting to see that line sort of ridden along um, because they are sort of objects if you get close enough up to them to yes. see them as that um, that's yeah. about that's about thank you very much for that perspective as well i think i think those of us who attend to painting are conscious that one doesn't have to go beyond the fine arts necessary i mean the distinctions are becoming fast redundant anyway but a painting is always an, a thing and an image simultaneously and that's that's um, when you're dealing with a masterful painting, that's that's made manifest, and um, uh, that gives us something to really work with. Uh, any last person who's bursting with a comment or an observation? Yes, uh, second row from the back, and this will be our last comment. Um, if you would wait just for the mic, it's just coming. Yeah, I was just uh, wondering if anybody had any further thoughts about the um, emotional content 
I think particularly in uh, Diana Cooper's work, if anybody had any experience uh, kind of in that mindset that they could discuss. No, I'm afraid it's the wrong time for a question. It's the right time for a comment because we're all going to go across the road now. Sorry. Uh, let's leave in abeyance the emotional content of Diana Cooper. Audience, thank you very much. Panel, thank you very much. And see you all on November the 6th.